Episode 44 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 8, Understanding Conflict Immediately Before, During, and After the Visit of Jesus Christ. This episode is an oddity in that I am combining multiple generations of events into a single transitional period of the Book of Mormon. I am also violating the organization that I outlined at the very beginning of this podcast series. I am labeling all of this transitional period as a single episode, Part 8, and I will label what comes in the next episode and the Era of Mormon as Part 9. I want to explain why I have chosen to do this. It should be clear to listeners that the arrival of and instruction provided by Jesus Christ in the Promised Land is the central culminating moment of the Book of Mormon. It includes the longest and most significant period of recorded first-person instruction. I can imagine that Mormon lifted the instruction provided by Jesus Christ directly from the records of Nephi 6 as he recorded the words while they were being spoken by the Savior himself. Just before Jesus arrived, the consolidated settlement that we discussed in detail in the previous episode divided and returned to their various homes, and then, as I will explain in a few minutes, it all fell apart. So, what we have is a profound poetic teaching point about unity in the Book of Mormon in the chapters that we discuss in this episode. We have physical unity, near-perfect physical unity, that lasts for a few years only, and then, as we will see, there is near-complete physical disunity. Then, the destruction associated with the death of Jesus Christ, followed by his later miraculous appearance, where Jesus preached and inspired near-perfect emotional, social, and physical unity that lasted for generations. That near-perfect unity was then followed by a period of somewhat slow but consistent decline into greater and greater levels of disunity such that when we start the discussion of Mormon in the following episode, there was a hard division between Nephites and Lamanites. This transitional period is important. I think the poetry of the chapters we discuss is critical to Mormon's metaphor and his thesis. This is the climax of his emphasis on unity, and it is really important to recognize this as such. Just as we often dismiss the military details in the Book of Mormon as trivial and irrelevant to all non-military readers, we often dismiss the significance of this poetic moment of what Jesus Christ did. His arrival and the resulting transformation of Book of Mormon society was sandwiched between profound events of disunity. This is not an accident. Mormon puts great emphasis on this profound transformation to make it as clear as possible what happens when we turn to Christ and live according to his teachings and what happens when we do not. We will get to this by talking about what happened before Jesus visited, during that visit, and then what happened after his visit. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Before the visit, the failure of the state through fragmentation. This discussion highlights the second destruction of a Nephite state, 
The first destruction happened shortly after Mosiah 1 led those who would follow out of the land of Nephi and down to the land of Zarahemla, as discussed in Omni chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. In what happened in Mosiah 1's day, or about 220 B.C., I assume that the Nephites who remained behind in the land of Nephi were destroyed in some conflict event. In what happened immediately before Jesus arrived, or about 30 AD, the destruction came from complete fragmentation of the state following the murder of the chief judge and governor. In the previous episode, I explained the events following the battles of the consolidated settlement. What happened after those battles ended was another rise of the Gadianton robbers. This group never seemed to die. The desire for easy victories through murder and plunder was too tempting for too many people, apparently. This was the third different robber band since the beginning of these groups in Helaman chapter 1. Like each of the preceding two bands, this one sought violence and plunder. Several of the judges were acting on their own in terms of conducting summary executions or murders to silence the testimonies of those following the gospel of Christ, as we are told in 3 Nephi 6.23. These actions were outside the bounds of the law, and the governor of the land sought to judge them as the story continues in 3 Nephi 6.25-26. The friends and family of those accused banded together and united under the secret oaths and combinations to kill the governor and to take control for themselves, placing a king over the land, as explained in 3 Nephi 6, 27-30. The new robber band killed the governor, though they failed to place a king over the land. Instead, the entire Nephite society completely fell apart. Each family or tribe took control of their own people, and the concept of being a Nephite, as defined as those who generally followed the covenants and ideology of the title of liberty, came to an end, as we are told in 3 Nephi 7, verses 2-4. Mormon provides some great information about this period, as we are told in 3 Nephi chapter 7, verses 5-7, and verse 14. Quote, Now all this was done, and there were no wars as yet among them. And all this iniquity had come upon the people because they did yield themselves unto the power of Satan. And the regulations of the government were destroyed because of the secret combination of the friends and kindreds of those who murdered the prophets. And they did cause a great contention in the land, insomuch that the more righteous part of the people had nearly all become wicked, Yea, there were but a few righteous men among them. And it came to pass in the thirty and first year that they were divided into tribes, every man according to his family, kindred, and friends. Nevertheless, they had come to an agreement that they would not go to war one with another, but they were not united as to their laws and their manner of government, for they were established according to the minds of those who were their chiefs and their leaders." But they did establish very strict laws that one tribe should not trespass against another, insomuch that in some degree they had peace in the land. Nevertheless, their hearts were turned from the Lord their God, and they did stone the prophets and did cast them out from among them. Close quote. 
There are a great many who would describe an era of no war as being synonymous with peace. This is a false perception, as Mormon clearly points out that peace comes through righteousness and living with integrity the truths known by a people. This was not the case from 30 to 34 AD. Even though I talk a lot about the robbers and Mormon blames the robbers for the assassination of the governor, the robbers were not the ones in control or even the primary cause of the contentiousness in this period. In general, the robbers were hated by the other tribes, and the danger caused by this hatred led the robber leader, Jacob, to flee with his band to the land northward, where he built a new city called Jacobogoth, as we are told in 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 9. The robbers did achieve their goal in having a king, as they declared Jacob their king, but he was king of the robbers only and not of the entire Nephites and or Lamanites. Even though the robbers precipitated the collapse of the state through the assassination of the governor, it is very clear that the wickedness of the people had exacerbated the general societal fragmentation to such a point that a single event brought the entire system down. Mormon emphasizes several times that there were very few righteous people, and he contrasts this with the power and miracles of Nephi 6. This contrast is critical to his message of maintaining fidelity to your covenants. Nephi 6 and his steadfast faithfulness to his covenants stands out like a beacon in comparison to the general willingness of the people to turn like the dog to his vomit or like the sow to her wallowing in the mire, as expressed in 3 Nephi 7, 8. It is in this state of complete disintegration that the destructions came upon the people following the death of Jesus Christ. This is another poetic contrast between disunity and the perfect unity six years earlier and only a few months in the future. The Juxtaposition of Extremes I begin this section by referencing a quote from the August 1971 New Era magazine where then-President of the Church of Jesus Christ, Harold B. Lee, in an article titled, From the Valley of Despair to the Mountain Peaks of Hope, quoted an earlier First Presidency message issued during World War II. Quote, The Church is and must be against war. The Church itself cannot wage war unless and until the Lord shall issue new commands it cannot regard war as a righteous means of settling international disputes. These should and could be settled, the nations agreeing by peaceful negotiations and adjustments. Close quote. Keep this expression in mind as we lead up to how Jesus Christ taught about those behaviors and traits that precede violence like disagreement, contention, and dissension. Before Jesus taught the people in person, he died in Jerusalem. His death caused darkness and destruction in the Book of Mormon New World, as we are told in 3 Nephi chapter 8. And then the people heard the voice of Christ in chapters 9 and 10 prior to his physical appearance in chapter 11. The death of Christ and its attendant destruction in the world of the Book of Mormon had a profoundly reshaping effect. I do not necessarily mean this in terms of the physical world, though there is reference to this, but it reshaped the thinking of the people. 
the wicked were destroyed, the righteous were humbled, and all were ready to be filled. This transformation of personalities and willingness to accept what was to be given was essential to the societal transformations that were to take place. The title of this section, The Juxtaposition of Extremes, is not to say or imply that preceding these events there were not extremes in close contact. The previous episodes and the discussion on the unity of the consolidated settlement and the subsequent disintegration of the Nephite state were juxtaposed extremes. What I want to emphasize in this section is how Mormon, in his construct of the record as we have it, placed the two most extreme events recorded in the Book of Mormon, the peace of Christ and the genocide of the Nephites. They are not juxtaposed in time as if there was perfect peace one year and debauched slaughter the next, but rather Mormon brings them in very close contact through his selected emphasis. We have the perfect peace of 4th Nephi, with the disintegrating Nephite state and willful rebellion of Mormon chapter 1. Mormon placed these extremes in contact by choice and to make a point. The instruction of this great prophet comes through his literary and editorial devices as much as through his commentaries. In what follows, we will briefly investigate the teachings of Christ that led to the peace of Christ, and then set the stage for the events leading up to the final destruction of the Nephite people and civilization. We will discuss that destruction in greater detail in Part 9 of this podcast series. The Visit The Savior Teaches About Conflict and the Peace of Christ I want to begin with an odd statement. The teachings of Jesus Christ in regards to conflict began on the fourth day of the first month of the 34th year of the Nephite calendar, with the destructions that come at the time of Christ's death, as we are told in 3 Nephi 8.5. In the voice that comes after the destructions and during the darkness, the Lord gives an account and an explanation of the destructions as recorded in 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 9 a part of which reads, quote, And behold, that great city, Jacobogoth, which was inhabited by the people of King Jacob, have I caused to be burned with fire because of their sins and their wickedness, which was above all the wickedness of the whole earth, because of their secret murders and combinations. For it was they that did destroy the peace of my people and the government of the land, Therefore, I did cause them to be burned, to destroy them from before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints should not come up unto me any more against them. Close quote. As stated previously, the people who lived in Jacob Bugath were the followers of Jacob, the robber, who led the group that conspired and murdered the chief judge and governor, which in turn led to the disintegration of the Nephite state. Jesus Christ, whose voice is heard making this declaration, taught that ultimate retribution exists in his hands and that no perpetrators of evil or violence will escape eternal punishment, even though they, like Jacob and his followers, may escape earthly retribution. In the teachings of Christ, people tend to emphasize the mercy and forget about the fact that he is also a God of justice. 
The destructions and the teachings that followed were important in expressing the fact that Jesus Christ taught that there is punishment for those who kill and destroy the peace of the land. First Principles Taught Mormon's metaphor of conflict emphasizes the three issues of preparation, covenants, and unity, with the emphasis being on unity as the most important of the three. Christ emphasized those same principles as he appeared to those gathered at the temple in the land bountiful. His introductory words stressed the unity he has with his Father, as he says in 3 Nephi 11, 11, quote, I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning, close quote. Jesus then continued to emphasize the importance of unity as he states three times in the first chapter of his sermon that there should either be no disputations or that contention is not a part of his gospel, as we are told in 3 Nephi chapter 11, verses 22, 28, and 29. He further stresses the unity of the Godhead by stating that belief in one leads to belief in God and that they are all one in 3 Nephi 11, verses 32, 35, and 36. Jesus also emphasized the phrase, in my name, during this initial sermon, especially in reference to the covenant of baptism. The Bible dictionary included in the edition of the scriptures published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has an entry on prayer that teaches some profound truths about the phrase, in the name of Christ, or in my name, when stated by the Savior. Quote, Christians are taught to pray in Christ's name. We pray in Christ's name when our mind is the mind of Christ, and our wishes the wishes of Christ, when his words abide in us. We then ask for things it is possible for God to grant. Many prayers remain unanswered because they are not in Christ's name at all. They in no way represent his mind, but spring out of the selfishness of man's heart. Close quote. My point is that Christ emphasized not just the importance of entering the baptismal covenant, but in doing so in his name, meaning in the way that he prescribed or in unity with his will. The lesson of unity is interwoven throughout the first principles and ordinances taught by Jesus Christ to the Nephites. Christ also taught the same instruction as he did in the Sermon on the Mount in the Galilee. An important difference in reading the instruction given to the Nephites as opposed to that given to the Jews in the Galilee is that in the Galilee, Christ was teaching people living in a Roman world who understood the possible compulsion of Roman soldiers to ask anyone to carry a burden a Roman mile, as expressed in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. In the same statement in 3 Nephi chapter 12, verse 41, that was given in the Nephite world, there was no such Roman law, and therefore the teachings of Christ should be viewed in a different light one of true request rather than legal compulsion. He was teaching a higher law with the same exact words and therefore one that required a greater deal of faith to follow. Clearly his audience had that faith 
as Jesus expressed in 3 Nephi chapter 17, verses 8 and 20, and in 3 Nephi 19.35. Christ continued his instruction with his famous words on conflict and how we, as his followers, should react to it. The words are often quoted, but few have ever lived them so fully as did these Nephite listeners. Quote, and behold, it is written, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye shall not resist evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And behold, it is written also, that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But behold, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father who is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. Close quote. The Peace of Christ The results of the teachings of Christ were transformational among the Nephites and Lamanites who received his word. The process of conversion was not immediate, though it was complete. It took nearly two years of teaching for all to be converted. Mormon tells us that they lived the instruction of Christ, and there were no contentions and disputations among them. This world lasted for a significant period of time. Under the influence of living the gospel of Jesus Christ, the people received high praise in the description by Mormon given in 4th Nephi chapter 1 verses 15 to 18. Quote, and it came to pass that there was no contention in the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people and there were no envyings nor strifes nor tumults nor whoredoms nor lyings nor murders nor any manner of lasciviousness and surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. There were no robbers, nor murderers, neither were there Lamanites, nor any manner of ites, but they were in one, the children of Christ and heirs to the kingdom of God. And how blessed were they, for the Lord did bless them in all their doings. Yea, even they were blessed and prospered until an hundred and ten years had passed away, and the first generation from Christ had passed away, and there was no contention in all the land. Close quote. The ideal for Mormon was a world free of robbers and tribal divisions, a world he must have known too well. Clearly, this was a world in which he longed to live. This period lasted a long time, but it came to an end by degrees beginning in 194 A.D., when a small part of the people, as we are told in 4 Nephi chapter 1, verse 20, quote, revolted from the church and took upon them the name of Lamanites, close quote. After another seven years, the combination of a large population and the possibility of resource competition combined with pride and social divisions led toward a contention of religions. By 210 AD, the religious contention had elevated to a point amongst those people called Nephites that there were attempted executions for belief, burnings, feeding to wild beasts that were foiled only through the faith of those so sentenced. 
The decline from the ideal steadily continued. In 231 AD, there was a great division among the people, such that there were again tribes and tribal divisions. Mormon makes this point to emphasize that it is in this environment wherein the principle of hatred can be effectively taught. Without the division between us and the other, dissension and contention is much more difficult. Secret combinations make this distinction through their use of oaths and signs, but it can be just as effectively taught and inculcated in the division into tribes and tribal groups. Secret combinations and oaths began to enter into the social equation at about 260 AD. It is important to note in this decline from perfect unity and righteousness to this debauched and sinful world, there had been no armed conflict. The fact that by 300 AD there were secret combinations and robbers and they did spread over all the face of the land means that there must have been some violence as robbers cannot survive without it, yet Mormon did not mention it. In all of this evil and sin, the peace of Christ remained. No wars, no battles, and no armed engagements. There must have been murders caused by the robbers, but the societies did not wage a war. This speaks to the power of Christ's teachings, that it required a total failure of spirituality and righteousness before they re-entered the world of warfare. It is not until 322 AD that the first post-visit war was fought. Nearly 300 years of not fighting major battles had clearly caused atrophy in the art of war, as the early reintroductions to warfare seemed to be very rudimentary, and without any mature tactics or strategy. Again, the spectrum of conflict had begun, and the lessons were relearned. Observations, Military History I talked to my military students about something that I call a military generation. The biological definition of a generation could be from birth to reproduction. Organizationally, this is metaphorical, but the importance still exists. In modern militaries, a new officer enters a unit, and the primary person responsible for developing that young officer into a responsible and capable officer is the company commander. I ask my students to define the length of time from entry into officership to company command. The answer varies. But for the U.S. military, it is about six to seven years. For the purposes of this discussion, six to seven years is the length of time for a professional generation. By the way, it is about the same time period for an enlisted soldier, meaning from a newly entered private to a squad leader, give or take a year or two. Using this thought process, if an army doesn't fight a war for 20 years, then there will have been three generations of officers that have no personal experience with combat, and the lessons of combat would need to be relearned. It is this gap in experience that gives emphasis to the importance of some form of written military doctrine. It is the written word that can convey lessons and ideas from one generation to the next, absent personal experience. Karl von Clausewitz, the 19th century Prussian military officer and theorist, tells us that, quote, 
we will never find a savage who is a truly great commander, and very rarely one who is considered a military genius, close quote. He goes on to explain why he made this statement, quote, possession of military genius coincides with the higher degree of civilization. The most highly developed societies produce the most brilliant soldiers, close quote. There is a reason why those peoples without cities tend to fight wars along the lines of conducting a hunt. They did that because everyone hunted all the time, and it was easier to explain the conduct of actions based off this common experience. Most people today see Clausewitz's comments as being jingoistic and lacking empathy. I disagree. Clausewitz was being practical. He was acknowledging that savages, as he calls them, lack the written word. They lack the trappings of civilization like libraries and schools. They lack the ability to pass the knowledge of one generation on to the next, absent the existence of some storyteller being present. For knowledge to pass, it requires experience or the written word. For the military, that written word is often called doctrine. I want to make several points here. Two are military and one is spiritual. One, the Nephites and Lamanites went from about 33 AD to 322 AD without fighting a war or about 289 years. I have no idea what the length of a military organizational generation was for the Nephites, but I will safely assert that dozens of such generations came and went in this period meaning there was no ability to transmit military experience from the last war to the most recent war. Two, we are told that the Nephites had records, but we are also told that the records were stored up in a safe place and that Mormon was designated as a very young man to go and retrieve them in a future period. We will address such information in later episodes, My point is that I don't believe that the Nephite commander in 322 had any doctrinal publication or military treatise from which he was working. Three, most importantly, how are we addressing our spiritual generations? How much time must pass from initiation into the gospel of Jesus Christ before one is spiritually mature to develop and mentor a new convert? How do we maintain the continuity from generation to generation? There are numerous stories about when general authorities from the church returned to war-torn Europe following the end of World War II to find a variety of discrepancies in administration of ordinances and interpretation of doctrine. That gives a sense that a generation is less than six years at a minimum. Lessons Learned Spiritual I hope you are seeing the supreme value of things written in supporting and sustaining a gospel culture. We need our written scriptures, our written general conference talks, and our written handbook of instruction so that when we are separated from others, we still have the Word of God and we can then provide understanding beyond the end of a generation. The single most important instruction from Jesus Christ is that of unity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of unity. I know that I say this a lot, but it is that important. The metaphor of conflict in the Book of Mormon is a metaphor about a dual unity. 
individual unity with God through righteous efforts to maintain a daily connection with God through the presence of the Holy Ghost, and collective unity through loving service and sacrifice for others who help us become a community of believers. Community is a word of importance as it is literally the combination of communal unity. Everything Christ taught to the Nephites was about his unity with God and the Holy Ghost and about the importance of us being unified with each other or at least avoiding disunity by eschewing dissension and contention and discord. How does this unity occur? We must have faith in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, become one with Christ through taking upon us his name in the waters of baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost through the laying on of hands. In this, we see preparation, covenants, and unity laid out in sequence. Conclusion The visit and instruction of Jesus Christ is the climax of the Book of Mormon story. It is the summation of Mormon's metaphor and instruction. What comes after this visit is a further example of what happens when the three points of that metaphor are violated or ignored. When we cease to prepare, then we become weak. When we reject or dishonor our covenants with each other and with God, then the society divides into tribal factions. In short, we are weak and divided which equals disunity. Mormon doesn't give us any details on how this disunity occurs, as that isn't the point of his writing. He is telling us how to become like Christ and return to live with God, not the opposite. We will discuss Mormon and what happens to him in the next part of this series as interstate war returns and the Lamanites and Nephites go at each other again. I recommend that you refer back to episode 8 or part 2.2 of this podcast series where I discussed Mormon and his life before we dive back into that time period as I will regularly refer back to facts given in that episode. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. All one word. War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.